0: What, why are you laughing already? I love how as soon as I said let's get into it, you went
1: okay. Yeah, I think it's just residual radio voice. I just think that you know
0: that we're got to you
1: got to lower an octave when you're about to start recording. <laughs> oh. Maybe we
0: should try to push back against that by going hi, <laughs> just go up an octave.
1: Really? <laughs> you think so? What's happening? Yeah, well, it's Friday, end of the week. I just feel like going to bed. Oh, do you love? Yeah, I
0: don't know. uh, Do you know what I did this morning, which always makes me really happy? It was the day to change my
1: bed linen, and I just – I get a lot of pleasure out of – What day is that? Is that a Friday?
0: Well, it's Friday, yeah, Um, and I just get a lot of pleasure out of – particularly when it's a weekend where I'm not having my kids – I just the remaking of the bed and the clean sheets and knowing mm. that I'm going to be getting into the clean sheets and that they're not going to be sullied by a child running into them at 1am and, and like hanging on to me. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a really nice feeling.
1: Oh, it's a princess feeling.
0: A small, it's a small pleasure. That one
1: I will gratefully take. Are you kind of scented candles? And, oh, you know? God, I
0: hate candles. I've, haven't I thought bought the candle? <laughs> just mentally just, panically scrolling through the number of times that I've given you a candle for your birthday. For the, birthday. Yeah. Um, 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 for um, the benefit yeah. of you and anyone else listening to this, whoever has to buy me a gift, a candle is the gift that says, I don't know who you are. Unless you are someone who likes candles, in wow. which case it says, I know who you are. <laughs> a tiny someone out for the candle lovers. Gives, anytime someone gives me a scented candle, I just go, you just do not know who I am. What about if it's
1: one of those vagina? Sina-centred ones that. What's her name? Makes well, you definitely don't know who I am.
0: If <laughs> <laughs> you're giving me one of those, <laughs> straight to the bid.
1: <laughs> did you watch the Kathy Freeman doco on the ABC? Oh man, I really, really, really did, and absolutely loved it. It was um, I watched with the kids, so it was like a really good. It was a really good thing to watch with them. Twenty mm. years ago, like seems. It doesn't seem like 20 years ago. It does when you start telling your kids about it, then you think, oh, man, yep, I'm ancient and that was a long time ago. It
0: seemed like when I was watching the doco, I mean, it feels in my head like five minutes ago, but when I watched it back, I was like, wow, that seems like a really long time ago. Yeah. And I was amazed how much I'd forgotten, like, I'd forgotten just what an amazing time that was in Sydney, you know, when the Olympics yep. were on. It was incredible. And also I had forgotten, it sounds ridiculous, but I'd just forgotten how famous Kathy Freeman was. Yeah. I mean, she was so famous in Australia. Yeah. Um,
1: and, and internationally. I mean, oh, she was.
0: Incredible. And also I just had forgotten how – she was so far out alone both in her achievements yeah. and in her um advocacy for her community yeah. and
1: for you know being out there with the indigenous flag and what about i mean i remember that that caused this huge fuss but like how did that cause a fuss It's just Yes, yeah, some so of that bizarre, stuff in hindsight seems weird comprehend. and for me the moment in the documentary that just made me kind of shake my head but also just really admire her and really registered how much bullshit she put up with was like a camera just caught up with her. She's in her tracksuit. She's got her bag over her shoulder. She's heading off for another, you know, 18-hour day of training or whatever, and they're like, oh, well, Arthur Tunstall's had to go at you for carrying <laughs> the uh, Aboriginal flag. And, and she's just gone, ah, uh, yep. I don't really care. You know, (laughs) you just think, (laughs) oh, man, like literally the hoops that this woman's jumping through and the burden that she's carrying for all of us, you know, expectation and performance and, you know, even all of that stuff around Marie-José Parek, which I completely forgot forgot about. I mean, yeah, just all of that stuff to remain – level-headed to the extent that she did for years and years. In the face of all that, it's just the sign of a truly substantial and significant person, I think, and that's that's what really came. That was the strength of the documentary, I think, just that the thing that she gave to all of us and the uncomplaining way that she carried the burdens that we kind of stacked on her.
0: You you did feel watching it like she gave the nation a real gift, um, one that – you know will truly last and has truly lasted the test of time um it felt also i mean gee there were so many things about it but it felt like something that the nation needed to watch at the moment too because <laughs> was just a reminder of happier times and yeah. you know a great sort of moment in australian history that everyone was the whole nation was happy about you know so that was that was lovely to see that
1: i mean just even technologically the idea of everybody stopping and doing the same thing at the same time now seems mm. like an incredibly old-fashioned idea, yeah, right?
0: That's all right. Speaking of technology, I did when I was looking at the pressure she was under. I was thinking, oh man, imagine that in the days of social media. You know, yeah, yeah. Wonder how that would have played out. Um, it made me look. It made me happy watching it, but it also made me sad because you know they had some vision of the reconciliation march across yeah. the harbour bridge, and I felt like. You Know there was a lot of goodwill at that time, and the pub I felt like when that happened, it was the public, black and white Australia, saying we want this to get sorted, yeah. you know. And I felt like, oh, geez, you know, 20 years on, and we've still got a very, very long way to go, yeah. Um, just was a reminder of you know how little has been achieved over that period of time, you know, while there have been some achievements in reconciliation. Um, I think the other thing too that struck me, well, two other things one was, um, the way she talked about running and how her body felt wow. like it was made to run, and the the incredible feeling she had when running, like she was almost flying. It made me want, want to ask her today: like, does she ever just go for a jog or something? And does she, does she still? That would be
1: your question to Cathy Freeman. To do you ever just like you, go for a jog?
0: Kathy? What happens when you love? <laughs> what happens when you love <laughs> something?
1: Australia's foremost. Affairs you can't interviewer. tell me you don't want to
0: know that. Where does that energy <laughs> and where does that love for that go when you can't do it do it anymore? Like, does she have something else that's replaced that still gives her that blissful feeling? Does she go did, for
1: a run and? But, and how, but why would she that not that? From, come from from running? Still, just because she doesn't run that fast. Well, she anymore. just didn't say that. Yeah. Does she run anymore?
0: Like I just wanted to know. Yeah. Does she go for a jog? Does she still go for a run? Phone in, Kathy. Anytime, <laughs> I know you're a listener. <laughs> the other thing that blew me away was the use of the dancer from Bangarra yeah, Dance Theatre. Yeah. That was amazing. So, for anyone who hasn't seen it, they. Often when she's talking about what she's thinking, um, they use this vision of this amazing dancer who is in a sort of studio in in quite a sort of ethereal looking setting, and you know it's amazing because as someone who works in TV, I would imagine you know if a reporter came to me and said, or I was working on a doco and someone said, okay, it's about sport and this and that, and um, but I think what we're going to do we're gonna is just we're going to cut in, yeah, we're going to cut, cut, cut a dancer. Yeah. On paper, <clears> that idea looks. Brought with yeah. risk and peril in the execution, it was absolutely fantastic. And it just, I thought it beautifully tied together athleticism, spirituality. Um, her, she was talking a lot about her ancestors, so yeah. her history. And it was the, a brilliant way to cover stuff that she was talking about that couldn't very easily be visually represented. Right.
1: Because, like, when you're making a documentary, you're great. Um, Enemy all the time is, you know, do we have enough overlay? Do we have yeah. enough images, you know, enough archive to cover and evoke this period we're talking about? But the thing is, all of the archive of Kathy Freeman is her just surrounded by a million people or, yeah. you know, just being in the focus of the national gaze in one yeah. way or another. So, the strength of the film is that she's talking so eloquently about what's happening inside her head. Yeah. But how do you how do you find images to match that? Because she's never alone. You know, That's in right. the times that we've seen her, so they don't have you know her kind of being reflective in you know under the stadium before it all happens. So um, and they- to substitute in um, a quiet and beautiful meditative. Um, sequence that actually allows you to listen to what she's saying and how she's describing the feelings that she's having is actually just a genius move.
0: And as you say, a lot of the um, archive of her, it's busy. She was surrounded by people. There's cameras going off all the time. There's tons of people around You're in a stadium. And so it it's almost at complete odds with what she's talking about in terms of her mental state and her race preparation, which is absolute stillness and focus um, and control. And so none of that archive would work. And the other thing I thought it was incredibly useful for is when she's talking about her thought process in the, you know, lead up to the start of the race and all the rest of it, you need to slow time down because if if you just thought tracked that, her voice over the top of the actual moment when she walks out onto the yeah. track and the race, it would be over really fast because, you know, the race is over in, you know, yeah. a matter of seconds so um, or minutes I suppose. Um,
1: 47 seconds.
0: 40 seconds. Um, so that device allows you to slow time yeah. down and so yeah. you can take that, you know, 40 seconds and stretch it out over, you know, five minutes or whatever as she explains what's going through her head. So, yeah, I thought that was like – Masterful. It was so creative, such a piece of lateral thinking. And uh I I could not have loved it more.
1: Yeah, it's a great film. I the my son, who's ten, as we were watching it, said it was really perceptive actually, because I don't know that he's ever really thought about television or making television in this way. He said, The editing on this is really good, mum. Oh. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, and it was, I mean, uh, it was beautifully edited and sometimes, I don't know, editors are geniuses, oh, the way yeah. that they can take something and it make it lighter somehow or um, mm. change the energy just from sort of snipping back and forwards. It's um, a complete dark art, I think. Hey,
0: speaking of the arts, um, yeah, can, yes. I, can I share that um, I went to see the Australian Chamber Orchestra's first concert back oh. Um I was really curious to go because firstly, I am so starved of seeing anything live that at this point I would go to see Sting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Coldplay. Like if I heard you know Coldplay, Sting, like Coldplay. To this yeah, podcast, yeah. Sure. Don't you? I can't, hate Coldplay, hate Sting, but you know what? I'll just I just want to go. Um, She's so such a wretch. I just I was really curious because I thought. So they were at Angel Place in Sydney, Angel Place Recital Hall, and it was allowed to be one-quarter capacity and you had to wear a mask. And I was just curious to see. Did you go by yourself or with somebody else? No, I went with somebody. Um, Right, so were you allowed to sit next to each other? Yeah. Right, okay. Um, I I was worried that it might be really depressing and I thought perhaps the applause might sound sparse Mm. and that we would just be all all of us there really conscious that Mm. it was, you know, this sort of. Subpar kind of experience. That's part of our new Corona normal. And actually, it was the opposite. It was really great. The when the musicians walked out,
1: <clears throat> excuse me,
0: the audience applause. It sat the venue sat at full. Like the applause was just, you know, really. Full. Do you think they
1: were pumping in some canned applause just <laughs> maybe, for effect?
0: Maybe. Everyone at our end, at the audience end, like it was just so thrilling to see musicians walk out on stage and to feel like you know we're able to see people do music Mm. again and the musicians looked really thrilled to be walking out and appreciative of how thrilled the audience was and then when they played like everyone everyone just seemed every person there whether you're in the audience or whether you're on stage just felt like they were really cognizant of the luxury and yeah. the pleasure and the privilege of
1: being part of it.
0: And so it was actually a really um, quite incredible experience. I feel and there like was we should record yeah, a it. trigger
1: warning for the beginning of this episode for anybody listening from Melbourne who's just like, we're like you eating a like Big Mac in front of a starving person. <laughs>
0: yeah. Or any performers that are not able to um, take the stage yet because the ACO is fortunate yeah. I guess in that they're not a massive um, – you know, group, they don't have wind instruments yep.
1: and um, or in that it's performance. Wind thing. instruments, my kid plays the trumpet. Uh, that's been called off at school because it's a wind instrument and you spit flies everywhere. Um, Belvoir have just reopened, Belvoir Street Theatre, with a um, season of A Room of One's Own. Oh, right. One woman show. So, you know. Oh, I mean right. So getting around the – um social distancing yeah, on sydney, stage sydney, you can't get more socially distant than a one hander play. sydney theatre company has two i think with yeah. they've got a, it's hugo
0: weaving and i think it's like two people um, yeah. on stage i can't remember what it is Gosh. you know I, like, I i would say this because i'm an arts person and not a sports person
1: um but yeah 40,000 people in the stadium yeah no problem yep so bizarre i I know
0: I accept that it's outdoors and stuff, but I think right. So we've we've all been able to um, put on our thinking caps and make some effort so that we can have all of that stuff still going on, and that's great because a lot of people love sport, and I'm really happy for everyone that can go to that. I'm really happy for everyone who can watch it on TV who gets something from it. I don't. I do not begrudge the sport going ahead. I begrudge that we can't put the same amount of effort into finding ways for performers and concerts and theatre and music and all of that to be able to find a
1: way to go ahead. I associate myself with those sentiments and I also admire the fact that you put the definite article in front of sport, the sport. I'm not – I don't (laughs) begrudge the sport. (laughs) Anyway,
0: it was great to see the ACO back and they sounded fantastic and – yeah, it's. I mean, I know, in in the um to add to the uh, statements that have made made on this podcast of the bleeding obvious, <laughs> that Richard Tonietti is really quite something, not, isn't he? <laughs> he <really> can play. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was great. I loved Bless it. I've loved every socks.
1: second of it. Yeah, yeah. But I've been watching a little bit of television. I'm uh, edging back into television, though still observing my early bedtimes, which is really cutting a swathe through my – I didn't
0: know you were observing early bedtimes. Oh,
1: man, I'm going to bed at the same time as my seven-year-old at the moment. It's awesome. Really? Yeah. Why? Because I just – I'm tired. No, I just – I don't know. I'm just really getting into sleeping. Are you a bit depressed? Possibly. Well, somehow I really feel like going to bed. Sometimes I put her to bed and i just like, oh, just lie down here for a bit. Mm. Good morning. (laughs) It's good.
0: Um, Are you waking up earlier because you're going to bed Yeah, right. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I usually wake up pretty early anyway. Got to get that uh, Dawn worry slot in. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll yeah. tell you about one of my worry slots later about, <laughs> in the lead-up to an interview I did this week. Anyway. All right,
1: um, well, okay. Can if you it's
0: tell the me, interview what you that I'm interview? thinking
1: about, then um, I, so I watched two interesting things in the last uh, week. One of them is a um, – a, a movie called Bad Education starring mm-hmm. Hugh Jackman and oh yeah yeah okay. and um what's her name excellent woman was CJ Craig on the um west wing oh my god why don't I I know her name um
0: oh um but- Alison Janney yeah Janney.
1: thank right. you gosh um anyway it's it's one of those films that would have been a theater release i think but uh, but i watched it you know on God, I'm going to say Netflix, but maybe it's HBO. I don't know. Right. I, it all blends into one. I'm sure it can be looked up. It's um Anyway, it's a recent release film um, and it's based on a true story. And so Hugh Jackman stars as the um, uh, principal of this school um, and – um Allison Janney is the sort of school administrator and it starts off, um, he's kind of bustling around, he's the world's greatest headmaster, he's kind of, you know, friendly, involved, um, the parents love him, the kids love him and so on. And then there's this kid who works for the school newspaper who, who goes to get an interview with him and is writing a story about um, this infrastructure project the school's just Um, signed up to this really expensive thing called the Skywalk. It's going to, like, be amazing. It's going to be a sort of point of interest for the school. Everybody's like rah-rah. And she starts asking some more questions, this student newspaper reporter, and she gets onto this kind of scandal in the school. That's all I'll say about the plot, Mm. but the way that the characters change over the course of the film is just masterful, oh, and man. it also the film just absolutely reinforces for me that Hugh Jackman is an unbelievably good actor.
0: Wow! Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, it's um oh, a great good. film. I wouldn't yeah. have necessarily uh, watched
1: that, but you've done quite a good cell drop. Though. Bad education, okay. based on a true story. All right. It's good. great. Um, good. Anyway, um, and then. Uh, Quickly thereafter, I watched a documentary called Boys State. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a doco about a real-life thing that happens in Texas every year, has been happening since the 30s, I think, where they get all these boys who are kind of about sort of 16-ish together in Texas and they get them to essentially pretend to be politicians for a week so there's like there's like more than a thousand of them huge group all dudes there's a girl's equivalent apparently although it just does not get a look in in the documentary and I did a bit of you know nosy searching it doesn't seem to be as big a thing as the boys thing which stretches back to you know like I said the 30s and and all of these recognizable um, politicians have been um, alumni of this Project, so there was Cory Booker, there was like um, oh God, one of those dudes from the um one of the dudes was it Rumsfeld maybe um, anyway, recognizable faces on in the on the alumnus board, and they start off the week being divided into two groups, and they 're called nationalists and federalists, so it 's kind of like vague about you know who they are and they have to run as gu- uh, gubernatorial candidates put together policy positions and it ends with this sort of runoff governor's vote you know what i'm thinking about don't you what well, hamilton <laughs> <laughs> of course you are anyway carry on god by the way Cabinet um, Cabinet wrap just this will not happen again but like just one quick Hamilton detail. My oh, daughter this morning so showed sorry, me. Sorry,
0: everyone. So sorry. Weird
1: Al Yankovic has made something called the Hamilton Poker, yeah. where he records all of these songs into a sort of like oh, completely fre- frenetic, sped it up sort of poker form. Horrific. Yep. It's it's perniciously addictive. So um <laughs> stay away from it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, it's bouncing through my head at this sort of really quiet. Kind of elevated speed mm, in a really God. distracting way right now. Okay. Anyway, Federalist boys' State, Here's yep. what I'll say about the program. I mean, you know, there's protagonist protagonists that emerge. There are like there's dirty tricks. It's amazing how quickly these boys fall into these really conventional. Patterns about how politicians behave, like it's yeah, right. There's there's like shit sheets being put out. There's you know, and the like the most depressing element of it is that they are given no instruction at all as to you know what their policy positions should be or even where to start putting together a policy platform. And do you know where they all go straight away? Abortion and gun rights. yeah Ugh. it's all about abortion, and I'm like dudes <laughs> dudes, it's absolutely shocking is and it, do you recommend watching this or is it oh yeah okay, yeah, yeah, right. no, it's definitely I mean i i I kind of was watching it through my cracked fingers for a bit, but it's just and it is it is depressing, yeah, but also just so fascinating because you think, wow, you don't you don't understand until you watch something like this how much even young people who are relatively inexperienced in the process absorb about what the conventional ways to be in politics are. Oh, how
0: depressing, particularly given how bad politics is sort of everywhere at the moment if you're watching
1: and learning from that. 100%. And then just the Second Amendment subtext to the whole thing, like it really ends up turning on the second amendment and the attack job that's put around about one of the candidates for for governor for one of the parties is that he led a rally um that was organized by survivors of school shootings you know and that that counted against him like it was being used against him that he was he had <sighs> protested like against gun laws at some point. Anyway, it just made me think, wow. Like, it's in Texas, you said. said yeah, in Texas, right? correct, yeah. <laughs> so it just made me, it's a really, really interesting insight into how stuck America is because even the kids think that that's how it works, you know. And it's always been fascinating to me how the U.S., which is a country with voluntary voting, how the importance attached to certain issues warps and swells under those conditions. You see, like one of the reasons that abortion, you know, A, it's a state criminal issue um, in this country and so there's been attempts to kind of wedge it into federal politics from time to time but pretty few and far between. But also we don't need to uh, inflame people in this country to get out the vote, which is exactly – the problem that the U.S. has, right? Like they need to actually get people angry Mm. or frightened to get them to the ballot box and the best way to do that is with these sort of morally um, incendiary issues. And, I mean, gun rights is obviously the absolutely reliable driver of voter turnout in certain states. (sighs) Yeah, sorry, that was cheery, wasn't it? Yep, it's very depressing watching what's going on over there at the moment. What it's- about you this week, though? You, <laughs> I watched your Sarah Huckabee Sanders interview. Oh yeah, I your resting the, uh- face was pretty funny <laughs> during that interview. <laughs>
0: um, look, I <laughs> that was what I was going to say before about my uh, my middle of the night worry slot. Which it, uh, this always happens if I have a big interview, um, particularly that interview because of the time difference to the US was done at seven fifteen in the morning, so yeah. I had to go into the office and do it, and. Uh, I kept waking up. You wake up all night, firstly, because you're worried you're going to sleep through the alarm. (laughs) But then also, when I have a imagine if you had to interview her from your boudoir
1: camera, that would be (laughs) like sending some seriously mixed messages.
0: (laughs) Whenever I have a high degree of difficulty interview, I've always got performance anxiety. So if it's you know, I'll I'll often have a bad night's sleep before it. I had the most shocking dream uh, in the night, waiting to do that, which was I dreamt I was in the studio about to do the interview. I had eight minutes. When, when they came up on screen, it wasn't just her sitting, you know, in a room waiting to be interviewed. It was at a big rally with heaps of people. No. The first four minutes was taken up by Obama and his family who were performing some sort of skit or something. And I was like, hurry up. I have you chewing into my minutes. And then uh, – Finally, when Sarah Huckabee Sanders came on and I only had four minutes left, every time I tried to ask something, as soon as I said something that the crowd construed as negative about Trump, they just started shouting and oh booing. God. And so she couldn't even hear the questions I was asking. And so I woke up like in a complete like start and, uh, you know, sweating. And then I thought, oh, God, is it time to get up yet? It was only 1.30. Oh. <laughs> and the whole rest of the night was like repetitions, variations on that. I was
1: just oh, At hideous. least you tick, you know, denounced by an angry Trump mob, mob <laughs> off your list of things to dream about.
0: My anxiety <laughs> dreams are just so close to my actual
1: job, you know. It's oh, really? Just,
0: oh, yeah, totally. It's just it's always, you know, you're interviewing somebody or you've got to go on TV and you're not prepared and things aren't working and, you know, it's it's always that.
1: Mine are always uh, transit. Like they're the, they're the most banal anxiety dreams but they get really detailed, you know, like, um, like I'm trying to get somewhere – to do an interview or something, it's always work um, and I don't know what time the plane is leaving or I'm stuck in traffic or I'm trying to catch a train and I suddenly find the tracks have turned to jelly and, you know, suddenly I'm in a country (laughs) train station and then I've always like the only thing that these things always have in common apart from my transit method failing completely and having to leap to another one that then also fails is that I – try and pull out my phone to try and text someone or get help or, you know, check into a different flight or something and I can't open the phone, the buttons don't work oh. and I oh. keep, you know. Oh, sickening. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so, and it's weird because <clears throat> I haven't flown anywhere for God knows how long and yet the dreams just still keep coming. I think it's my preferred expression of anxiety.
0: The thing with Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Donald Trump is – um. For people who don't know who she is, she was Donald Trump's press secretary for two years. Um, It's the habitation of this universe where fact and truth does not matter. Mm. So people like that are very, very difficult to interview because you can confront them with facts and they just pretend that you've told a lie. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's just really difficult. So all you can do is try to ask the most clear questions imaginable and every time they say something untruthful, come back with, um you know, something that is truthful mm. and hope that the audience is able to see it for what it is. But unfortunately what's happening with audiences now is people often want to hear stuff that just parrots their own views back yeah. to them. So say, for example, you know, all of the Trump people don't want to hear – see her put under pressure, all of the um, I stand with Dan people on social media don't want to see Dan Andrews Mm. asked any inconvenient questions about what's happening in Victoria. And so um, it's it's really difficult because, I mean, people often, you know, in my job they perceive bias, they think that I'm biased if I ask questions that they don't like that don't support their worldview. I think I do have a bias which is just towards logic and fact. (laughs) Yeah. I just like logic and I just like the facts and I like them expressed clearly. And doing interviewing somebody like Sarah Huckabee Sanders, it's, it's hard and depressing because how do you deal with somebody when you, you, in a question, put a fact to them and they respond with their spin on it and then you point right. out the inaccuracies and then they just keep going?
1: Because for an interview to work properly, like as it conventionally should, you really have to start – where you're both standing on the same bit of ground, right? Like you're standing on a set of agreed facts or conventions, right? Yeah. And increasingly, and this is true um, more broadly beyond just, you know, television interviews, we don't now have arguments or discussions or negotiations where we're all standing on the same bit of ground, right? And that's why it's really, I mean, that's why frustration and kind of bitterness and hatred just flames out of control because you don't agree with the premise, you know, that somebody else is starting from.
0: Well, and it's, you know, like I interviewed on the program as well this week the West Australian Premier Mark McGowan. Now that's an example, I think, of what you're talking about, which is where there there were um, an agreed set of facts that both Mark McGowan and I agreed on, which is um, Western Australia doesn't have any coronavirus, Mm. Western Australia's borders are closed. And Mark McGowan doesn't want to open those borders. That's the facts. And so I put those facts and Mark McGowan, you know, from his answers, he agreed those are the facts. Mm. And so then you can have an actually a proper discussion because then yeah. you can you can interpret facts differently and you can act in different ways based on the facts. So Mark McGowan's position is he doesn't want to open the borders anytime soon because he doesn't want coronavirus to get into WA and he thinks, you know, among everyone knows all the options you know, competing options are all pretty bad, but mm. he thinks that's the least bad one and the best for his state. Mm. And so, it's my job to then sort of test the workings test of that decision. That's right. Yeah. Is that is that actually the best choice for you to make? And so, I then would ask questions to say, well, what about the fact that there's not much community transmission around Australia? Like, do you really need your borders closed? Um, and he would say, well, yes, and this is why I think that. Now. To my way of thinking, that's useful because his position—whether you agree with it or not—you can't argue it's not a valid thought-through position. Mm. He he has a position based on what he views the facts as being, mm. and he was able to Plus argue his value that. That's yeah. right. That's his judgment. Whether you agree with it or not, that's what he's doing based on the facts as he sees them. Yeah. Um, where it's problematic with, like, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, is that. You're not agreeing on the facts. Like say, you know, climate change, that that is a fact that the climate is changing and human activity um, contributes to that. If you believe in science, then you have to believe that because that's what the overwhelming bulk of science shows. If you're interviewing someone that doesn't accept that, I mean, how how do you even have well, a rational a discussion?
1: Right? Yeah, how do you have a rational discussion? I'm reading this, um, I'm just. this is going to get even more depressing now, I'm reading this book um, by Brian Stelter who's the media editor at the New York Times um, he is the author of a past book about um, the morning wars at the Today Show, which I just oh, absolutely yeah. ate up with a spoon like it was yep. curd. <laughs> I love that. I don't know why I just love stories <laughs> about the behind-the-scenes tensions at stupid American <laughs> networks, but there it is. I just love it. I don't know why. Anyway, so he's written this book called Hoax, which is about the Fox News Network, and it's such I found it a revelatory, gripping and terrifying book. I think there were some things, I mean, I kind of knew obviously about the rising power of the Fox network and the symbiotic relationship between it and Trump, its move away from news and towards supercharged commentary. What I hadn't realised was, A, how much money they're all making Mm. out of it Mm. and, B, how they this is something the book goes into they've so successfully weaponized the fox audience that now even if they wanted to they couldn't change the recipe and the format at fox because they're all making so much money out of it and because the audience is engaged clamorous and trained to believe a certain thing right and and will even go for the throat of a fox news presenter that that strays from the script. It's actually frightening. The other thing that is really, really interesting, I noticed um, President Trump this week talking about his evening of viewing on Fox, you know, all the shows that he's watching. It's just absolutely amazing that a serving president in the middle of a pandemic and economic collapse could be finding time to watch six hours of Fox panel shows, you know, of an evening. It's just quite extraordinary. But What Stelter writes is, and I think I'd always assumed that, you know, that the Fox kind of culture runs sort of off Trump, but actually it kind of goes the other way around. So stelter has gone back and kind of reverse engineered some of Trump's more random public statements and traced them back to, oh, yeah, that was from an email that was read out on Fox and Friends at 5 a.m. you know, that morning. He's actually getting all of this material from his viewing of this news network and that then is sort of fed out into the public domain or reinforced by the president who's like quoting stuff that he's seen you know Steve Doocy say at the crack of dawn that morning it's just the most unbelievable and you'd have to think just completely dangerous feedback loop And because Stelter's got a few sources at Fox, you know, he's talking to people who are saying, I just, you know, what we're doing is so bad and we can't stop. Like no one can stop because the audience is so hooked in and everyone is making all this money, you know, like um, Sean Hannity who makes about $30 million a year, you know, to broadcast from home, never goes out, spends two hours a day on the phone to the president. See, and this is the person who's kind of denouncing out of touch elites in the mainstream media. What if you just think, what? What? It's just
0: I just dread where all this is going. It's just so depressing. Now we shouldn't. Yeah, this is a cheery yeah. one, isn't it? Let me tell you about something that makes me feel really good. What? Do you know
1: Nat's What I Reckon? I love Nat's What I Reckon. <laughs> I that guy, I love him so that much. potty mouth dude, <laughs> just makes me, makes me so laugh. Good. He's got. He's got so much positivity. Like he just makes me feel good. Does everybody know who that's? What I reckon is that's what I reckon is the um, kind of long haired tattooed. He <laughs> just looked
0: the sweary swe- chef, My kids call him.
1: super sweary, and <laughs> he's just absolutely smashed it during COVID because he's just showing you how to make basic, simple food. He's, he's got a war on food jar out sauce. of cans and jar yeah. sauces and stuff. So he's yeah. like. Here's how you make a bowl of eggs.
0: Yep. And it's always, he makes it seem really easy and like, you sort of feel like, oh. Totally, I can do that. Like, um, and he's always, he calls her a champion. So he's yeah. like, get a champion or, you know, you can do this champion. And it's so bizarre because he just makes me feel like, yeah, I can.
1: <laughs> he's just feels great. Co- oh, God, there's just so many crack He's absolutely up hilarious. Throwaway lines. he's very, very, very funny. Extremely and-
0: funny. And his girlfriend who's filming it, you sometimes hear her crack up laughing <laughs> when he says something. It's just, it's really adorable. I just absolutely love it. When I see he's got a new video, I always think, oh, yes.
1: Can't yeah, if- and um, good news is that he's also got a book coming out, I noticed, from social media. Did you yes, see that? He did I t- do. Penguin's yeah. yeah. got- bringing it out. I know. I cannot wait for that. I legit <laughs> cannot wait for that. Um, one, I've been down a few, and that's what I reckon, Burroughs, because he's just so funny in the cooking shows. And he's got, I mean, he's a comedian, so he's got yep. all of this um, other great stuff online. And, oh, my God, there's just the most hysterically funny one that he did about Camry's. I think it was Camry's. Oh, it was like a great. family yep. car. Was it the Camry? Yep, it was yep. Camry. Yep. Anyway, his theory about the Camry is that every Camry driver has a box of tissues in the back window <laughs> of the car. <laughs> and so in this video, it's like, I'm pretty sure it's filmed in Elm, Enmore Park, like right oh, around the corner right? from where I live. It, like, cause I'm like, is that Enmore Park? He's st- strolling around all these parked cars. <laughs> It's like finding Camry after Camry, which sure enough, I've got boxes of tissues. And he's—I mean, it's—it's um—it's super sweary, but he's like, ah, because that's right. If you're if you're driving your Camry along, I mean, you just feel like you have got to blow your nose. Back window is the most convenient place to put a box of tissues, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, it's it's so funny, it makes me love, sob with laughter.
0: He he does the exact opposite to what a lot of cooking shows do, which he goes right, champions, get yourself an onion, chop it. I don't give a fuck. Hey, chop it, just <laughs> fucking chop it. And, then <laughs> just, and so it's like he just reduces. He takes all of the snobbery and the degrees of difficulty right, he's the out anti-lengue. of everything. <laughs> Absolutely, it's just like I don't care. Whack it in. What vegetables you put in it? I don't really care. You I would love to whatever, see him know, like double great. up
1: with Yotam in a cooking show like well, that. Would know, be I,
0: you came. I suggested to you that I'd love to see you and him do a cooking show together, and you said we could call it Kitchen Crab and Nap.
1: Oh my god! I did come up with that yeah, idea. Yeah, that's so clever. That's kitchen crab and that. Yes, brilliant. Oh my I never that in the bin. And one more thing that he did though, that which, which is really good and might even be of use to our dear friends around this country that are, um, you know, following the national trend of feeling more down than you usually do. And apologies that we haven't helped very much in this particular podcast, but just. Catastrophi- <laughs> catastrophizing about the world where we're all heading. Um, however, he's also done this really beautiful little quick video on depression because he suffered a lot from depression in his past, the old Nat, and there's such a great little bit that he's put together for anyone suffering from depression about just what, what it means to even just get out of bed in the morning, like just giving people – just some breathing space to feel good about even the small things that they've managed to do, you know, and not to be hard on yourself when you feel so defeated by life that you can barely lift a cup of tea, you know. And he's he's such a great role model, I reckon, and I really love that he, as a comedian particularly, put some effort into putting that little video together because I watched it and I thought, you are a good, good man.
0: Yep, I absolutely love him. On that note, you have a great day, champions. You guys are all (laughs) champions. You're champions. You can do it. Love you, champions.